continue to reinforce them the truths and the doctrines of your word and who you are and what you do for your people. Father God, I just speak to us here. Lord, in whatever we've come in with, whatever we've struggled with leading up to today, whatever burdens we carry, Father God, you say to us to lay those things at your feet this morning and again to see what it is you can do in our lives. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you in Jesus' holy name. So last week we kind of introed into this idea that we wanted to spend the month of May going through the book of Proverbs. You know, and, and Proverbs is one of those interesting books. You know, I, I, there's several people that I listen to and some things that I'm looking at. And so as me and Darren were talking about it, we were like, well, we can do this or this. So I was like, well, let's see how everybody else does it. And, you know, in all honesty, not many people preach book verse by verse through the book of Proverbs because of the way it's set up. You know, it's, uh, it, it spends the first nine chapters, just to kind of intro into this a little bit. It spends the first nine chapters introing you towards the Proverbs themselves. Because the Proverbs themselves are these kind of uh, blips or these kind of uh, these, these little sayings that, that aren't necessarily part of a cohesive narrative. They're more or less these kind of words of wisdom that are laid out before us. And, and Solomon, remember like we talked about last week, Solomon, when God told him, you know, what can I give to you? What do you desire from me? He said, I want wisdom. Oh, wisdom. For, for a lot of us, that is great instruction for if we want to lead with, because he's king at this time. So his, 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 in his mind, what can I lead with? You know, he didn't ask for armies. He didn't ask for, for strength. He didn't ask for, for goods or supplies or, or weapons. Whatever it might be, he asked for wisdom. And I believe for us, first and foremost, that is the greatest example of us, uh, for us, as far as the things that we should be uh, craving for when leading our families, when leading our spouses, when leading in these spaces that God has given us, is the wisdom that only God can provide. And so remember last week we talked about, uh, Charles Spurgeon said that wisdom is the right use of knowledge. And to know is not to be wise. So just because we have information in our minds about something in particular, about whatever it might be, even about Jesus or about uh, our, our families or about how to, how to lead our families or how to, you know, we may have read every book on parenting. We may have, uh, have read, gone to every seminar on marriage. We may have uh, been to 100,000 churches. But just because we have knowledge, is that it does not make us wise. And so true wisdom that comes from God reveals to us how to apply the knowledge. And so the book of Proverbs, you know, one of the most consistent Bible reading I do is a proverb a day. You know, I, I, I am very ADD. I have very difficulties leaning into long stretches of reading. And so I'm working my way through the entirety of the Bible. But just in all honesty, and if that surprises you at all, I'm sorry, but I have not read through the entire Bible. The most consistent reading I've done is in Proverbs. But the beautiful thing about Proverbs is there is specific application in ways that blow my mind sometimes. Like when I'm reading through it in these, these little nuggets of information that we read and we find it, we're like, my goodness. Like that is, that is exactly what I need right now in this moment. You know, because like we've, we've talked about the Bible before, the uniqueness of of the Bible is the Bible is the only book that while you read it, it reads you. You know, and it speaks to us and through us. I'm not saying there's anything supernatural about this group of pages, but the content at which these things were written, it is, works in a very supernatural way in our lives and the way it speaks to us. 
And so when Solomon is writing this, he's writing to a group of people. And so this morning, you know, we're going to we're going to cover chapter one, um, which really, in a lot of ways, is, is connected to chapters two through nine. But I'm not going to torture you and try to preach chapters one through nine this morning because you probably kill me and our kids would probably uh, kill our, our workers next door. But. What this first chapter really does is it really sets the playing field for what Proverbs is about and really kind of the crux, uh, kind of the, the overarching theme that the, this book uh, is about is in verse 7. When we see here, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know, and so when we talk about fear of God, we're not talking about this shuddering fear, which there are some instances where that's, that's applicable. You know, when we consider our sin, when we consider our uh, our nakedness in front of a holy God, you know, there is that sense. You know, when a, uh, when Isaiah, when he when he sees the kind of the presence of God, the seraphim, he, he shivers and he's in he is in fear. But it's not so much a fear to run, but it's, a, it's an awe and just a uh, and just this uh, respect, this admiration, this reverence, this honor for this massive holy God. And the reality is. You know, and think about this maybe in your job. If you've ever had somebody come and tell you to do something, uh, to do something differently or to do something better, the way you view that person or the way you respect them will determine how you receive what they have to tell you, right? If you think that that person's an idiot, then you're going to be like, yeah, okay, thanks, man, and move on and do your thing. And so in a lot of ways, and I'm not saying that we necessarily look at God in this way, but I, I know for myself and maybe just in the context of our lives that there's a lot of times that there is not that sense of respect or that fear of God in a way that when we read God's word, when we hear God's word is preached, when we sing God's word, that we're, we're in as much awe as we should be. That we're as enamored with who God is and what God has done as we should be as people because in a lot of ways we've talked about this, but... You know, because of the freedoms we've been given sometimes, the freedoms to have God's word, the freedoms to, to worship, the freedoms to do the things that we, we desire to do or are able to do on Sunday mornings or even in our homes or whatever it might be, that we take a lot of what we have available to us for granted. You know, in countries uh, where God's word is illegal, where if you call of God's word, you can be prison, imprisoned or even murdered or killed for it or punished, executed for it. You know, and so... Because of the, the availability for it for us. And then also, and I believe what Proverbs is writing to, because of the distractions of life, that we've lost focus of the respect and that fear of God, that just uh, admiring, that reverence, that honor of who God is, the mighty creator of the universe. You know, and some of it's the church's fault because a lot of the modern church very humanizes God to this kind of lovey-dovey human level. When God is, is, an, is an omnipresent uh, spiritual being that created the universe and can breathe life into nothing, you know, and create something from nothing and can destroy things with the, with, with the, the thought, the will of his power. And, you know, and so God... For us, seeing who God is and seeing what God is doing is the very beginning of knowing or accepting anything from Him. If we don't fear God or have a respect or an honor or reverence for God, we will not receive from God what He has for us. And so for the first part, for, you know, in first, we have to, to hear what God has for us. We have to be seeing God appropriately for who He is. And this morning, in this first chapter, I really believe in what a lot of what Solomon is writing into is he's writing into the distractions. 
Because a lot of what this first chapter talks about is kind of this call of wisdom. And, and, and what is in, in, in that? What is entailed in that call of wisdom? And so this morning we're going to see about three things that are a part of this call of wisdom that God gives to us to kind of help us to drown out the noise, to redirect us, to bring us into those spaces that God intends for us to be. And just to kind of reiterate, in Proverbs 9.10, you know, uh, towards the end of Proverbs 9.10, it says this, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So knowing who God is, knowing what God's doing, knowing and having a respect and a reverence for God is the very beginning of any steps in gaining the wisdom that God will give us to navigate life as parents, as, as spouses, as people in this broken world that we live in. And so, you know... At the end of this verse, in verse 7, he says, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we move towards the end. But, you know, the reason why a lot of times we reject the wisdom that God has for us is because we believe we're wise within ourselves. You know, and, the, and so what we have to question is what are the voices that we're listening to? Because the voices of wisdom are things that draw us into God. The voices of our of our of our sin, the voices of the enemy within us draw us away from God. And so there's three voices this morning that God speaks into that Solomon is writing about that are kind of encased in this call of wisdom in our lives, drawing us into wisdom. And the first thing is this, in verses 8 through 10 and 15 through 19, uh, I really believe we see this voice of instruction, this voice of instruction. In verse 8, 8 through 10, we'll read here first. It says, hear my son, your father's instruction. And forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And so what we see here for right off the bat, I love how Solomon says this. He says he talks about kind of this complementary relationship that leads into instruction that is drawing us towards wisdom. He says, my, hear my son, your father's instruction. So this is Solomon writing to his son. In this moment, and then he's speaking from a very parental point of view. The thing that we have to understand is that wisdom begins with this uh, parental care, first off, that God has for his people. That God has for his people. Hear of the instructions. Learn from the teaching. Know and understand what is being given to you. And not only that, but then the next level of that, a level of that is any continued wisdom, any continued knowledge or growth is dependent on the continued parental instruction, the parental teaching, the complementary work that a husband and a wife do together in the marriage that they've been given in the family that God has blessed them with. Church, every single one of us as man and female in a marriage with children carry this responsibility of instruction and teaching to carry on and to move our people, move our family, move our churches towards wisdom. The true wisdom that leads us. The true wisdom that provides for us. There's this familial community that God invites us into to enjoy, to engage with in our lives, and to carry on as we teach. Because what he's, what he's really calling us to is this call of wisdom that begins with instruction. And it's a warning. What his warning is about is it's about abandoning, abandoning, sorry, the teaching and morals that he's been taught. You know, and so for a lot of us, you know, especially growing up in the South, 
There, there's no doubt that we have been taught a set of morality, a set of beliefs, a set of things about who God is, about how God works, and not those things have not always been accurate. But even in their inaccuracies, you know, I've even appreciated, I know the heart behind it, that even if it's not an accurate representation of who God is, I appreciate the heart around it. So even if you've been from bad situations in, in church or religion, whatever it might be, the reality is, is that our culture is very God-focused in a lot of ways. Uh, still here more so than, than other parts of our country. You know, we've held on to a little bit of that. But what is happening as you move out of the more familial elements of our lives and of our relationships and of our families, as, they, as our children, as they move into the universities, as they move into the workforces, as they get older and move into those spaces, those spaces, even here and now, are becoming more and more secularized to the point at which uh, that God is kind of being pushed out. God is being looked at as weak. And, you know, I mean, every sociology class or psychology class you take, it, unless you're going to a Christian university, you are not going to hear anything about creation or the way, you know, uh, whether it's views on certain things that, that God has preordained, that the university level, they're not going to be teaching your children anything about Christ. And so that instruction, that morality, that teaching begins to dissolve the strength of it or the influence of it begins to dissolve as our families move further and further outside of this comfortable space of our familial unit. And so for us, the responsibility that we have with our children is encouraging them and teaching them in this teaching and morality to the point where it's more it's more to them, more for them than the shallow end of the pool. We need them to understand something deeper to the point where it's actually a part of who they are. Deuteronomy uh, 6, verses 6 through 9 kind of speaks to this a little bit. It says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise and when you, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I love this verse because it's very uh, kind of intricate. It's very detailed. You know, it's not only putting it on places at which people will see it on you, but putting it on places, kind of uh, spreading it around where it's on your house. Now, I'm not saying you need to go to Hobby Lobby and buy a bunch of signs with a bunch of verses on it and hang it all over your house. This is more of a, of a, a symbolic type thing where he's speaking to the idea that the teachings and the morality of God and who God is and what God has done are kind of saturating every part of your life. That it's not just something that you attend on the weekend. It's not just something that you like for your kids. You know, I've heard this a lot, especially when we're doing youth and kids ministry at other places. You know, it's like people always want to be in a place where it's like, well, this is best for my kids. So this is where they need to be, right? Maybe you've heard that. Well, I, I want to get my kids plugged into church. I want to get my kids this because they see this value of morality for their children, but they don't apply that or see that much value in it for themselves. And so the draw is like, I need to make sure to do this for them. When in reality, the longevity of discipleship and growth for our children is dependent on us. We can't give that off to a church to be responsible for. It's not the church's responsibility. Understand that. You know, it, it, it's not, you know, whatever kids program or this or that. That's, that can be the core and the source of our kids' growth in Christ. It's got to be us as parents. 
grandparents. We are the people that have been given the responsibility to disciple and indoctrinate our kids with the truth and not leave space for any other indoctrinations to lead them away. Titus 2 verse 10 says, not pilfering or stealing, it says, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Proverbs 2 6 says, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And so I, I love this. And, and, and Proverbs 8 through 10 kind of speak a lot to what Deuteronomy 6 talked about, where it says, you know, hangs as a garland on your head, a pendant on your neck, so that, and like we said, as you move away from those comfortable spaces of influence, the morality and the teachings of Christ begin to break down. It says, so that, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not give yourself over to that, because it is coming. And that's the next part. The second voice that we hear is temptation. Is temptation. Verses 11 through 14. He says, if they come with us, if they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol or hell, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we will find all precious goodness. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us and we will have one purse. So what, what's happening here? I think what's interesting here is, is, is the way that this first sentence is. Because I think the first level of temptation is this invitation to community. Right? What does he say there? He says, if they say, come with us. Right? That is always how the voice of temptation begins. Is it begins with this invitation into a community. Like, we want to make you feel valued. We want to make you feel important. What it does is it preys on most of our weakness and insecurity of feeling a part of something. That we begin to kind of lean into these areas of sin, lean out of these areas of the wisdom that God draws us towards, kind of sacrificing this to embrace what we feel like is community, what we feel like is acceptance. You know, I mean, that's why, in a lot of ways, that's why people find they, they've convinced themselves they found a lot of community in bars and other places like that because, I mean, you know, regardless of what they're having to give up, they feel like they're gaining something better. It's like, well, in the bar, I have a community. In the bar, I have people. In the bar, I have people that love me, you know. And so, you know, as I kind of participate in this action, what's happening is, is they're being convinced of this false sense of community because the reality is it's only a momentary satisfaction. It's a very kiddie pool experience of life because the reality is when things break down, those people won't be there for you anymore. The true place that God provides community is first off in the family, second off in the community of faith in the church. That's what we're supposed to be. And so the problem a lot of times, you know, and, and, and where we can fall short as the church is simply providing community, you know, just trying to be like a social club. Church isn't supposed to be a social club. Because the thing that makes Christian community a Christian community is Christ. And so as a church, we can't be pointing towards social experiences and just enjoying each other's company. It has to be a community that is pointing each other to Christ. Because that's the only thing that binds us together. It's the same thing in a family. Pointing to Christ is the only thing that binds that family together. We can socially be together. I can be around my family for, for the rest of our lives and, and exist and function. But the longevity, the joy, the, the growth comes from that unit pointing to Jesus. We can find community a lot of different places. That's what they're inviting this person to. His son Jesus, when they come to you, they say, come with us. They're inviting him to a community. 
But what Solomon is instructing on is that that community's end is not the satisfaction that you think is there. And then he continues on. And he kind of reveals that this temptation, this temptation kind of offers some things. First off, in verse 12, he says, like shield, let us swallow them up. You know, this temptation that leads us away from wisdom, it always leads us towards places like this, where people end up being more of a product than a person, where the, the world outside of God, the world outside of, of God's morality, it looks at relationships as a transactional thing, right? It's like, I'm, I'm only going to give you what you give me type situation, you know? It's like, uh, you know, only give as much as you're going to get. It's very transactional. kind of treats marriages like that. treats friendships like that. treats a lot of things like that. Very transactional. Which is very opposite of the gospel. Because the gospel was not transactional, right? Christ offered us something for nothing. We did zero to earn what he gave us. What he's offered to us. And so the opposite of the gospel is very transactional. So what we end up doing as people, when we're not being led by the wisdom of God, when we're being led by the, the wisdom of the world, or we're being led opposite of the wisdom that God has for us, is that people end up becoming something that we consume, something that we use for our own pleasure. And that's how God takes and distorts certain things that he has ordained that are beautiful within the context in which God has created them. Uh, you know, whether it's in uh, sexual relationships between a husband and wife, God created those things to be enjoyed beautifully in the context of a marriage. And so when you begin to move outside of that, then people just become things to be consumed for our own enjoyment, for our own uh, pleasure, rather than this beautiful union that God has created. Do you see how that breaks down as you move away from the core of wisdom in which God has ordained? People end up becoming commodity. They become something to be consumed when we move away from the wisdom. That's what he says. We will swallow them up. And that's, that's, that's using Using people for our own good, for our own pleasure. And then moving down, it even offers this. It said, we shall find all precious goods. Temptation always comes with this weight of like gain, right? All the precious goods. I mean, that's, that's a pretty high statement, but in a lot of ways, we can, we can convince ourselves of that in the midst of some type of temptation or sin that we're being drawn towards away from the wisdom that God is calling us to. It says, with all precious goods, it's all going to be great, right? It's all going to satisfy you. It's all going to be everything that you want, everything you desire. It's valuable. It's important. Like pre It's precious. These precious goods. You know, so that is that voice of temptation telling us when we're moving away from the wisdom that God invites us into, when we're moving away from the beauty of God's community, of what God is doing in our lives, and we begin to move into these areas where maybe we're being drawn towards kind of the twinkling of the silver in our eye. Like, man, I want that. I want to gain that. I feel like that'll, that'll make me feel worth something, or that'll make me feel like I have something. You know, it's very easy for us to get in situations in our lives when we're moving away from the wisdom of God and who he is. And maybe in like, you know, Solomon writing to his son, don't forget what I've told you about who God is. And so for a lot of us, as we've grown up in our life, maybe there have been times or maybe you're in the midst of one of those times where you feel yourself moving away from the wisdom of God, chasing things, chasing precious goods, chasing whatever the next thing is to make us feel important or valuable or satisfied. So that's what the, the temptation promises. It promises 
precious goods. And not only that, but he says, we shall fill our houses with plunder. You know, the American dream has convinced us that to be successful and happy, we have to have the biggest and the best, right? We've got to constantly be growing. We've got to constantly be moving in and out of debt. Like we've got to, we've got to have the nicest, the fanciest. We've got to have all these things. And listen, to have things is not wrong. But when we're being driven by those things, when those things become the priority, when, when living uh, to a certain standard is our God, or having certain things is our God, then it is an empty God, but it is the promise that temptation tells us. It says your houses will be filled with plunder. You will have so much. You will have so much if you follow this. Gotta push away from wisdom. Because this is the opposite of wisdom that we're talking about here. This temptation is the opposite of the wisdom of God. This is more foolishness, which we'll get on to later. And then he says in verse 14, throw in your lot among us. And so basically what this is, is he's saying, join us to share in an experience. Temptation always promises some sort of experience. And a lot of times, that experience doesn't quite last, and so then we come back to it, hoping that maybe if I experience it again, then I'll get what I feel like I need from it, some type of peace or comfort or guidance or whatever it might be. But in reality, what ends up happening is it's like pouring into a bucket with no bottom, is that we just keep going back to the experience, back to the experience. Listen, experience is a very poor God because experience changes with circumstances, right? And so if, if the way that we view God, if the way we approach God, if the way we lead our family, the way we worship, and the way we pray, and the way we love and, and serve people is solely based on experiences, listen, sometimes doing good for people is a bad experience, right? Sometimes trying to help people is not a pleasant experience. Sometimes people take advantage of it. Sometimes people hurt you. Sometimes people disappoint you. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. Sometimes the experience is not good. But if we put everything, put our lot in the experience, then we will miss the wisdom of what God has for us and the leading that he wants to do. And then the last thing is this, and I'll be done. So not only the voice of instruction and temptation, but the last voice is the voice of salvation. Verses 20 through 33. And he starts like this. He begins to kind of lay out that this voice of salvation, this wisdom, some things about it. The first thing being, how does wisdom call out to us? The question that maybe we ask ourselves, how does it call out? In verse 20, what does it say? It says, wisdom cries aloud. So the thing about it is if we're not hearing, and I'm not talking about an auditory voice of God, but if we're not hearing God within our spirit, if we're not being drawn towards God in the midst of our life, more than likely, the problem is, is that there are so many voices that we have allowed in our life that we have drowned in out, right? Because we stay so busy, so consumed, so driven by so many different things that it's a wonder that we miss, we miss God's voice. We miss the, the call of wisdom. But listen, it's there. We know it's there because Solomon said it cries aloud. It's there for us to hear. It's there for us to know. It's there for us to embrace. So then the next question will be, well, where, where does it cry out? Where, where does wisdom go to gain us? And I love this. What does it say? It says in the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, 
She cries out. What is that telling us? Do you see anything about palaces there? Do you see anything about castles or fortresses? Towers? No, it says wisdom cries out where we are. Wisdom cries out in the dirt. Wisdom cries out with the common folk. Wisdom reaches out. It's not specifically for the elite. It's not specifically for the intellectual. But wisdom is calling out to you. It is calling out to me, the everyday moms and dads and grandparents and workers and employees and employers, the people that live day-to-day life in this world. Wisdom is calling out for each and every one of us where we are. It's going to where we are. It's coming to the space where we're inhabiting. It's not asking us to climb some ivory tower to get there. It says, I'm here. I'm calling out to you where you are. I'm coming to you. And that's a beautiful thing about this wisdom. We don't have to go far to find it because God's bringing it to where we are. Just be attentive to it. We want to be better parents and live by the wisdom of God. God says be attentive to it because it's there. It's there for us. And listen, I've lived time and time and time again uh, over the course of, of my 30, I think 34 years of life. Uh, I forget sometimes. I mean, it's 34, 35. I feel like after you get past 25, you just forget. I'm just like, I'm just a year older, whatever that is. Over the course of my life, even up to today, I mean, every day you kind of navigate these spaces of like, man, I just need wisdom. Like, raising kids, like being a husband, like, I just need wisdom, God. Like, I need you to show me. And listen, God will reveal those things to us. He will show us, listen, and it may not always be clear, especially if our heads are crowded. And, and we're just distracted, and maybe we're even discouraged. Like, it may take time. It, it may not be a, a, a dip our hands in to grab it, and we get it all the first try. Listen, we have to keep leaning in towards that wisdom. But the beautiful thing of it, it is it is there. It's not made for perfect places. It's not reserved for the elite. It's where we are. And who does it speak to? Who does it speak to specifically? He says, simple ones. The scoffers. The fools that hate knowledge. That's who wisdom is crying out to. Listen, and and for all of us, we can find ourselves in this space somewhere. You know, the simple people, when it says simple, it's talking about people that will believe in anything. They will go with any narrative that seems most appealing. And maybe that's somebody here today. Maybe that's that, that's where you find yourself. It's like, you know, we, we, we can be easily convinced of anything if it's just put together. And said, we talked about this a little bit last week. Put together and laid out real clearly for us. You know, so it, cry, it calls out, wisdom calls out to the simple. Those who are, are easily, easily drawn towards other things. And not only that, but wisdom also calls out to the scoffers. The scoffers are those who think that they know everything. You know, the simple ones are, are fairly blank. But the scoffers are consumed with distorted perceptions and information and use it to argue. Maybe you know these people. Maybe you are these people. You know, when it comes to things about God or about spirituality or about living a certain way spiritually, I mean, or, or you know, maybe you know of people in your relationships or in the people that you deal with that they will argue tooth and nail against it or against a certain way or against uh, certain things about God or who God is. You know, this isn't, I'm not talking about arguments about doctrine or whatever, something like that, but I'm speaking more about those that are even in, in rebellion against God, speaking out verbally against God. Solomon says, wisdom cries out to them. Wisdom has not given up on the simple. Wisdom has not given up on the scoffer. And then he says this. He talks about the fools. The fools are those who desires are driven by a lack of spiritual love for Christ. And their outlook is materialistic and humanistic. The fool is the one 
And I believe this is probably the most common place where I know I've found myself, and maybe you found yourself, where we get so focused on the here and now. We get so focused on what we feel like we need. We get so focused on what we feel like we desire to fill the void where it's all, we kind of put ourselves at the center of the universe, right? Where how I feel, how I want, how I do, like that's what God, like that's God and obviously and that's what God wants is for me to be happy and to have everything that I want. That is humanistic, that is materialistic, that is putting us at the center of the universe and taking God out and making him an add-on to what we're doing. He says, wisdom cries out to those people. In all-encompassing sinners. I mean, that's how he starts off. He says, you know, God, the wisdom cries out to the sinners. Not the elite, not the perfect, not the priest. Calls out to the sinners. Calls out to the scoffer. Calls out to the simple. Calls out to the fool. God, in his wisdom, is calling out, drawing us in to something better. Because otherwise... What he invites us into when, he, when we realize that there's a call for us, when we realize that, that wisdom is calling out, drawing us into the beauty of who God is and what God does, he gives us the instruction on what to do. In verse 23, he says, If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. So what's he talking about there? Anytime the Bible talks about turning away from something and speaking of a word that we use a lot in church called repentance, that we acknowledge our need. That we acknowledge the direction we're going is not the direction that we need to go. That we acknowledge the things that we're doing, the, the things that we're using to fill the voids that we have in our life are drawing us to empty wells. That the wisdom of God is overflowing, but we've been drawn away from that. Whether it's been through this invitation of community, whether it's been of this false promise of uh, satisfaction or, or supplies or whatever it might be. But the wisdom of God draws us in. But at that point, when God is drawing us in, He has invited us to do what? To turn. To turn away. To, 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 to move away. To turn away. To turn our face from these lesser things. And you know, and you see several times here in Proverbs chapter 1 that even though God does the heavy lifting, there is work for us to do. What does He tell the Son? He says, do not consent. Do not consent. Do not give yourself to it. What does he also say? There he says, turn at my reproof. Turn at my reproof. Because he says, you know, all these things, all these things, kind of jumping back to verse 19, when we've given ourselves over to the spirit of temptation, we've given ourselves over to things that lead us away from the wisdom of God, it says, and such are the ways of everyone who is greedy or for unjust gain. In verse 19, it says, it takes away the life of its possessor. Listen, that's the problem when we listen to the voice of temptation rather than the voice of salvation is that it leads us to gain that actually takes life from us. The more things we have, the more we do, you know, the, the things that we invite into our bodies, the things we put into our bodies, the things that we drink, the things that we eat, the things that we buy, the works, that, the, the jobs that we get to try to fill this void of satisfaction that, that we need, they only end up, the more we gain, the more life they take from us. And so that's the life that he is inviting us away from. And Solomon's telling his son about this life that you be drawn away from. Because he says, moving on down into verse 31, he says, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way. Because listen, if we live by our own wisdom or live by the wisdom that the world draws us into separate from the wisdom of God, then he says, guarantee we will eat of the fruit of their way. That they will have fill of their own devices.
devices. Listen. The saddest, one of the saddest passages of Scripture, it's not so much the punishments of God in the sense of like the physical punishments of God. The worst place that we can be as people is the people that God has let go to our own desires. You know, and in Romans chapter 1, you've maybe heard this before, this, this verse, but Romans chapter 1, verse 24 through 28, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. What's happened here? God, that is not God taking us and putting us at a place. That is God saying, if this is the direction you want to go, then go. It is not God giving up on us. God does not forsake us. He is not giving up on us. But when the Bible tells us that, you know, in, in other ways it might be said, they gave them over to a reprobate mind, that he gave them up to the lust of their hearts. What he's telling us is that the worst place that any person can be is for pursuing the things that we want. Because the things that we want, the lust of our flesh, the lust of our bodies, they are going to drive us towards things that pull us away from God, that pull us away from the joys that we can have in His love, in His mercy, in His grace. Because what we begin to do is we begin to worship the creation rather than the Creator. We begin to enjoy the fruits of this world rather than the fruits of God, the fruits of His Spirit. Continuing on that verse, it says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You know, and, and just speaking of, the, of these things and, and, and of the, the life that we choose to live. And then towards the end of that verse, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased or reprobate mind to do what ought not to be done. And in this, and in Rome in this time, there, it's the way they use uh, wine. It's the way that they use uh, sexuality. It's the way they use all these things. They were using those things. They were distorting all these beautiful things that God had given his people. And they were perverting them for their own pleasure. And he tells us, he says, listen, if that's what you want, then that will be the fruit that you will have. It will be the fruit of your own way, the fruit of your own devices. And so what does it say in 32? It says, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of the fools destroys them. And I think that's the biggest thing. You know, as the band comes up, and we'll end with some worship here this morning, but I think that verse says it all. That the reason we end up leaning and, and, and wanting more of our own fruits rather than the fruit has that God has for us or the devices of our own self rather than the devices that God has given us is the complacency of fools destroys them. You know, we get to a place where we are very comfortable with our current circumstances despite the inadequacies of it or the spiritual place that it leads us to. We can get very comfortable with them. You know, I, I, I did home health and hospice, so I would go into a lot of different homes in a lot of different situations. And listen, there are some vast, very different types of places you can go. You know, very nice, very well kept, very clean, and then the other end. Very, I mean, dilapidated, very cluttered, very dirty, almost, un I mean, really unlivable in some instances. But you know what's crazy? Is that on both ends, they both live the same. They're both comfortable. They're both very comfortable where they're at. Why? Because listen, given time, we can get very complacent. Just, just, despite the destruction and the waste and the calamity around us, we can get very complacent and comfortable in the space that we live in. 
So for a lot of us, too often, if we find ourselves living in this space of complacency, the Bible tells us it will inevitably destroy us. If we are living by our comfort, if we are living by our experience, if we are living according to our wisdom rather than the wisdom of God calling out to us in salvation. Listen, there's a lot, and we say this all the time, there's a lot of very poor substitutes for the joy that God gives us. And listen, people enjoy it all the time. I mean, we, we have a world that is more anxious than ever before. We have a world that is more depressed than ever before. We, are, we live in a world that there is more substance abuse, where, abuse, whether it's drugs or alcohol, trying to kind of soften the blow of the world around us more now than ever before in human history. And why? It's because also, more so than ever before in human history, we're leaning towards our own wisdom or the wisdom of man more than we're leaning into the wisdom of God. And listen, that sounds very like churchy and spiritual, but I don't know how else to say it. God's wisdom speaks where we are for who we are to be what we ought to be. God wants good for us. God says in his word that he sees fit to work together good for all those who believe and are called according to his purpose. God has good for us. The problem for us will be is if we're giving ourselves over to lesser things, lesser wisdoms, lesser satisfiers. If we're trying to deal with the struggles of this world by our own wisdom, which usually leads us to other things, alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever it might be, I mean, it's going to lead us to other things to soften the blow of the hurt of the world around us. When God invites us into his wisdom, he says, I have those things for you. I have the fix. I have the cure. I have the analgesic that you need. You need to soften the blow of this hard world around us. Lean towards me to find that joy. Lean towards me to find that peace. He says, he is our strong tower. He is, he is that protector. He is that provider. He is the mighty warrior that fights on our behalf. Let's stop leaning towards our own wisdom and start leaning towards the wisdom of God. And let's start pointing our children and our families in that direction. God has given us that direction. And he has that call as calling out to us. So if we could, let us pray. As we kind of enter into this space to worship and to experience and thank God for who he is and what he's doing. That each and every one of us just in this moment, as we begin to sing, that we would, we would see and ask God. God, reveal to us. God, reveal to me. Reveal to us this morning. What wisdom are we leaning towards? What wisdom are we dependent on? What spaces are we grabbing on to lesser things, satisfying those innermost desires with lesser things, only having to constantly go back to these empty wells? God, help fix our eyes. God, maybe we need repentance here this morning. God, I pray for repentance. We need to turn away from some things, kind of drown out some, some voices, lesser voices than the wisdom and salvation you've given us. God, maybe we're leaning towards the, the voices of temptation this morning. God, let us begin to turn away from those things. God, let us turn away from empty calls to community that are lesser than you. God, let us turn away from empty empty experiences. God, let us turn away from empty goods, empty supplies, empty surplus and blunder that the temptation promises us. God, let us find our fill in you. God, let us find our satisfaction in you. And what you want to do in our marriages, 
what you want to do as we lead our children, what you want to do in the relationships and the circle of influences that we have and the spaces that we go to outside of this room. Father God, as we enter into teachers' appreciation, God, that you would give teachers the vision to see the beauty of what it is that they do in the spaces that they work in. God, provide them with comfort and courage and peace to be able to do that work. To begin to share and point towards the wisdom of God in the midst of the spaces where they are. And all the fears that may come and all the pushback that may come. God, that you give them the wisdom that they need to navigate and to share your wisdom in the spaces that you give. God, speak to us this morning, God. Reveal to us the truth about what it is your wisdom calls and invites us to, God. And let us worship you in that confidence to know to see what it is you intend to do with each and every one of us in the space of goodness. Lord, we love you. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Church, would you stand and worship with us this morning?
uh, tonight at 5 o'clock, our brothers and sisters at First Baptist Church have invited us to a night of worship. Uh, a couple of us are going to be leading worship there. And uh, it's at 5 o'clock at the home of Sean Cooper. He lives on Cooper Road. Uh, I'm going to give you the address. They didn't post it online, so that's why I didn't want to post his address online and just give it out to the world. But his address is one. 1412 Cooper Road in Quincy. If you plug that into your GPS, if you go on Cooper Road, it's the very end of Cooper Road. It's the last house at the very end of that road. Uh, they, they're going to have some food, some drinks. We're going to do some worship. And it's just going to be a great time to just fellowship with other people outside of our micro kingdom of God, kind of experiencing the macro church, being with some other people. I think it's going to be a cool opportunity to hang out with some other people. So come and worship with us. Five o'clock. If, if you didn't write this address down or you can get it between now and then, text me. Facebook message us. I'll give it to you. Four, uh, 1412 Cooper Road in New Quincy. Um, and so we want to invite you to come to that. They, they've just been so encouraging to us and they just love everything we're doing and so they want to have a great time of worship together. So that'll be tonight. Five o'clock is for the whole family to come and um, be a great time together. Am I missing anything? Anybody have anything? I'm not going to forget. We're good? Okay. Let's pray together, church, and then we'll be done, okay? Father God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for, for your truths. We thank you for the wisdom that you give us that only we can gain from you. So God, continue to lead us, continue to guide us, continue to direct us in the paths that you've, you've provided for us, Lord. And I just thank you for everything.